Father in heaven, uh, we now come to this which is indeed your word. Um, You've breathed it forth from these men so that what we have here is exactly what you want us to have. What we have here is your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would enable us to hear it, to understand it, to believe it, to receive from you all that you have for us in Christ Jesus, that you might be glorified. This, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Matthew in chapter 26, please. Matthew chapter 26. I want to read beginning with verse 26 and just through verse 29. Matthew chapter 26, please. Hear the word of God. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread... And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, we have been, the last number of weeks, months, I suppose now, uh, have been talking about covenant, and we've been making the case that to understand covenant, the principle of covenant, and understand the covenants that God has made, is to understand the very heart of God, the friendship we know, from Psalm chapter 25, verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. So by understanding covenant, understanding the covenants that God has made, we can understand the very hearts, the very heart of God. And we know that in the midst of this covenant form, this way in which God binds himself to his creation and to his people and they with him, that we have within this form a tremendous amount of assurance that the promises that God has made will be fulfilled. The form itself brings this assurance. For instance, in the very beginning, you remember that there is this, this sort of prologue and this, this historical prologue, we might say, that describes the one who makes this covenant. So in the very beginning of a covenant, the parties are identified, and the one who makes the covenant says, this is who I am, therefore this is why you can trust me. For instance, when God makes covenant with Abraham, he comes with this opening expression. He says to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward, which means I am the very one who protects you, And I am the one who provides for you. And so he lays all of this out before Abraham. And he says, therefore, that's who I am. And I'm coming to you to make covenant with you. So you can trust me. You can trust that I have your best interest in mind. You can trust that I am strong and powerful. And that I can indeed protect you. And I will protect you. And that I can indeed provide for you. And I will provide for you. In the same way as God makes covenant at Sinai. He begins with this expression. He says, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he, he says all of that right in, the, right in the get-go, right in the front. And he says, this is to assure you, this, as I make covenant with you, this is to identify who I am and, and so that you can trust me. I'm the Lord your God. Remember, I'm the one responsible for bringing you out of Egypt. I heard your cries. I came to you. I delivered you with all that power and all of that. And so you should be able to trust me. This is who I am. And so the very form of covenant is to bring us assurance to say that these promises really can be, will be fulfilled. Secondly, stipulations are laid out, as you remember, and that is the responsibilities. And so the covenant maker says, this is who I am and this is what I will do. And the covenant maker says, this is who you are in relationship to me and this is your responsibility. So it's very clear. This is exactly what must and what will take place. And then there are these sanctions, the blessings for faithfulness, the curses, if those with whom God has made covenant is, are unfaithful. He says, this is the penalty, this is the curse that will come to you. And then there's that dramatic oath curse which, uh, in which an animal is slain and, and, and blood is shed, if you will, and, and the makers of the covenant then, then bind themselves to the promises and bind themselves to one another, saying, if, if, if I am unfaithful to this covenant, then be it done unto me as done unto this animal, that is, that I would be killed. And, and what was fascinating, amazing, and captivating, and <sighs> breathtaking was the very fact that when God made covenant with Abraham, He swore by his own life, by his own existence, by his own name, that he would be faithful to everything that he promised. And you see, it's that that's to give us security, to give us assurance that yes, these promises will be filled. But there's also in the context of covenant and the covenant form, signs which are given, which seal the promises. Signs which point to the promise and said, if you look at this, this will be a reminder to you of what I've promised. You're not to camp on the sign per se, sort of like when you're driving down I-70 and it says, and you're coming, uh, coming west and the sign says, Lawrence, 21 miles. You don't get out and admire the sign. He don't say, what a pretty green shade of this is. And, you know, the numbering, it's very nice. Let's just, no, 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 no. You go, oh, good. I'm only 21 miles from home. Or you may say, oh, man, I'm 21. You know, whatever it is. But it points to something. And that's where your mind should go. Your mind should go to where the sign points. And these signs are to be seals. That is, they're to confirm that it's really true. Uh, if you saw a piece of paper that was hung up on a pole that said Lawrence 21 miles, written in crayon, you may not trust it, right? It, it, you may, I don't know if that's really true. But if you see a sign that looks like all the other signs, it looks like the signs that are made by the state of Kansas and so forth and put up the official signs, and in that sense they have a, the seal of the state of Kansas, that's really true, and you, you can trust it. Uh, it's sort of like the seal that's on your diploma. If you try to convince someone that you actually graduated from college, they may not believe you. Uh, but, but you can say, no, 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 I have this seal right here. It says it's real. This is authentic. And so the sense in which this sign seals, this sign says, from God, you can trust what's signified by this promise. This is my seal, my stamp. When you see this, when you administer this sign, when you partake of it, if you will, then you can trust me. This will help to bring you um, assurance Uh, uh, Thus, when Abraham seemed to be faltering in his faith, God gave him a sign, the sign of circumcision. The sign said, Abraham, what I've promised you is true. Uh, One will come from your seed who will bless all the nations of the earth, just like I promised you. You'll be a nation. You'll have descendants. 
You'll have a people. You'll have a land. Everything that I promised you is true. And Abraham, you can bank on this because you know that by the shedding of blood comes cleansing. From the shedding of blood comes forgiveness. And I've declared you to be righteous. And you are righteous in my sight because of faith, not anything you've done. And this sign confirms that promise because shedding of blood brings cleansing, brings forgiveness. I declare you in my sight to be righteous. All of this was to give Abraham assurance and all those in him, all those who would receive that sign then would say, ah, I belong to this promise. This promise is mine. This promise belongs to me. Thus, God has said there is a righteousness that comes by faith, just like Abraham received. There is cleansing that comes through blood. There is uh, this promise of God for my people, and it will be fulfilled. In the New Covenant, we have this sign, of course, of baptism. We know that, that, that Jesus has fulfilled everything that the Old Testament covenants promised. Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and, and God had promised that one would come from the seed of the woman and crushed out of the serpent, meaning he would redeem, meaning that, that he would reverse, meaning that, that, that all that had been taken by this evil one would be reversed. And Jesus came to fulfill all of that. He did come as that very one who would, in fact, as he did on the cross, crush the head of the serpent. He's, he's the one that was promised to come through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. He, he's that one. He did that. He's the one who came as the law keeper uh, in the covenant with Moses. And he is the one who would take the curse upon himself, which he did. He's the one who is king, as was promised to David. So everything is fulfilled in Jesus. And the question is, well, all right, how do we know that? Well, God says, in part, I'll give you a sign. And this will be a sign of water, be a sign of baptism, be a sign of cleansing, that there is cleansing by way of the blood of Christ, that which Christ suffered, the blood that he shed, is for all who believe. And there comes from that cleansing. In the same way that Abraham is counted righteous, because of the cleansing that came through faith. And then there is cleansing that comes through the blood of Jesus to all those who believe. And he says, now when you see this sign of water, don't camp out at either the bowl or the font or the pool or whatever it is. Don't go where it leads you. Faith. Trust. Know that there's cleansing that comes through the blood of Jesus. This is my seal. This is my stamp. This is that which authenticates, confirms my promise. Thus, God says, in the midst of baptism, believe as you see this. Now, there's also another sign of these covenants, and it comes by way of meals. It comes by way of eating. Um, We see it on this particular night Uh, that Jesus meets with his disciples this Passover night, this night of which Matthew and Mark and Luke speak of very explicitly. The Apostle Paul even lays this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as he lays out a a, a liturgy, really, for the church to follow and how we understand how we're to to, to lay out and administer at least this supper. But, 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 But in the context of meals... It would have been no surprise that the covenant, the new covenant, would be confirmed, signed, signified by a meal because old covenant meals existed uh, as well. For instance, there's one meal in Exodus 
and chapter 24 that's very significant in, in, all, of, in all of this. In Exodus chapter 24, we, we, we read this. This is sort of after the Passover. We'll come to that in a minute. But, but after the giving of the law, verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 1, Then he, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and, and, and 70 of the elders of Israel. So get the picture God is saying to, to Moses, come up the mountain and, uh, and bring Aaron, the priest who will be a priest, and Nadab and Abihu and then 70 of the elders of Israel. So you get this, this picture. So there's 74 of them at least. And um, Moses, and, and, and he says, worship me from afar. I mean, you can't come up that close. Mo- Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and, and all the people with one voice said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So you get the picture. He lays out again the law to them and, and all of that, no doubt, the Ten Commandments, and they says, we'll do it. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the law. Uh, he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. So again, you get the picture. Moses writes all this down, so here it is in a document form. Uh, And then he gets up the next morning, he builds an altar, something upon which to make a sacrifice. Uh, And then uh, 12 pillars, one no doubt for each tribe of Israel, uh, signifying that. And so you get this all at the base of the the mountain. Um, And he sent uh, young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings. So he got the younger people to wrestle the animals and kill them and all of that, the younger men, and and they did that. And they sacrificed a burnt offering, which means everything, by and large, was consumed, and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it out on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So get the sense here that this is a kind of a, what we would call a ratification, an endorsement of, a putting into effect of the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. And it was done by way of blood and by way of, of a meal. Because you see, they all ate of this. This was, a, this was a peace offering that was in a sense made. And so here, Moses and, I don't know if I read that part, Moses and, and the others, the 70 elders, uh, went up uh, On the mountain, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Uh, There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. So so you get a sense they're seeing, in some sense, the presence of God in verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And so there they were in the very presence of God having this peace offering, this meal that says, we've ratified, you've ratified this covenant, and now here we are together, and there's peace among us. Blood was shed. And this is the blood of the covenant. And that would prefigure what was to come. You remember in the book of Leviticus, all of the offerings that ancient Israel were to make were laid out, and there were burnt offerings for sin, and there were peace offerings, fellowship offerings, offerings that meant after the burnt offering is made, after the sin offering is made, uh, then there's peace between us. And, and that offering, unlike that peace offering, unlike the burnt offering, 
was to be eaten. The priest would eat it with the people who brought it. And there would be this sense of peace to commemorate, to ratify, yes, all that God has said is true, and yes, we belong to him. Now, the Passover meal, you remember, was quite unique. You remember that brought that into effect, that particular meal. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. God had heard their cry, called this man Moses. You know, the story of Moses had been born there, fled. Called Moses by that bush that was on fire but not really being consumed. Called Moses to go back and deliver the people. God heard their cries, Moses goes back. You remember the various plagues. You remember the last one, this judgment on Egypt, wherein God had said that he was going to kill, by way of this angel of death, going to kill the firstborn. Now what would save the Israelite firstborn? What saved the Israelite firstborn was the fact that another was taken in the stead or in place of that Israelite firstborn. It was a lamb. You remember the, the lamb had to be sacrificed, no bones broken. It would be roasted. It would be eaten. On that Passover night, the blood of that lamb would be taken with some hyssop, which was kind of a natural paintbrush, and take the hyssop and paint it on the doorposts and so forth. And the people that night would sleep if you will, under that covering of blood. Uh, They would have a meal together. They would eat that lamb, all of it, and they would eat it together as a community of people, as households, and they would be eaten by everyone in that, of all the Israelites, millions of people on that night eating lamb. And this bread that was unleavened, it was unleavened because it was signified the fact they were going to leave the next day. It was going to signify they didn't have time for this bread to rise. And so they had to, they had to get it quickly and, 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 and hasten out. And so they all went to bed, everyone in Egypt that night, those of the household of Abraham and those not. The next morning the wailing was great because of the fact that the firstborn of the Egyptian households were dead. Whereas in Israel, there was rejoicing. Their sons alive. Not only that, but Pharaoh let them go. And you remember that they went. But that meal wasn't only to be a meal that would commemorate on that particular night. It was something that was to be practiced year after year after year. In fact, it was instituted by God as this sort of sacramental, this sort of covenant meal. And all generations after this, in fact, at the beginning of the Israelite year, were to celebrate this Passover meal. Now the question, what did it mean? How do they really understand it when they took that meal? Well, they would eat the lamb that would be sacrificed on that particular day. They would take unblemished lambs and they were to go to the temple in the temple only and the, the, the lamb would be sacrificed in the temple to take it home and that evening roast it, that evening eat it along with some bitter herbs, generally at least that's how the tradition evolved, and also this unleavened bread. And in the midst of all of that, there was a question that would arise from a son, from a child, and that question to the father uh, would uh, be laid out like this in Deuteronomy and, and, uh, and somewhere. 
You know, I used a different Bible this week. That's my problem. The son would, uh, would, would, would ask his father uh, the question, uh, how is it that we are to understand uh, this particular um, uh, meal? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in, in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great, uh, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. You'll notice the pronoun us in all of that. That, that, that. For generations, when the question would be asked, the dad would respond that God has delivered us. Now you might think that they would say that God has delivered them because in a sense he delivered them. But remember we're speaking covenantally. We're speaking of that which unites one to another. That which one experiences is affected, if you will, in the lives of the others. And so when these, they would come together for this meal, after generation, after generation, after generation, it would still be we and us. There's a sense in which, and this is the mystery of the meal, and this is the mystery of the sacrament, there's a sense in which and the eating of the meal unites. Now, it doesn't do it automatically. I mean, you can eat lamb and unleavened bread all the time, and, and you're not united to anything that took place in a particular generation and the meaning of that. But, but, but as they come believing, as they come in faith, as they come trusting and realizing, yes, that it would be therefore right for a father a hundred years after the actual Passover event during a Passover meal to say, I've been delivered from slavery. Why? Because he says, what was true for them is true for me. I belong to this God who delivers. Why? Because what was true for them is true for me. There's a certain sense in which there's a union between that which actually happened and those who eat that meal later. That's how they would understand it. In fact, as the disciples of Jesus would come on this night in which he was betrayed, and the scripture tells us that he eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with them. And they made preparations, you remember all of that. And here they find themselves in this room. What would they be thinking as they came into this room? Now we know that because of the week that Jesus had had and the time that they had with Jesus, who knows exactly what they would be thinking. Uh, perhaps they're thinking, you know, we've been with Jesus long enough to know we shouldn't be thinking anything. Uh, but, but, but as good Israelite men, what, they, what would be on their minds as they made preparation had always been on their minds as they came to this meal was there's a sense in which we're going to think upon God as, as our deliverer, as our redeemer, if you will, and realize that we belong to him, that we are his people. He is our, he's our God. And all of the promises that he made to our father Abraham are true, and they're for us. 
And all of the promises that he made uh, in, 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 in even the law are true for us. And all the obligations that are in the law are for us. And all the shadows of redemption and, and forgiveness, all of that for us in the midst of all this. But, but, but first and foremost, they would believe, they would know that they belonged to this God who was, in fact, delivered. The table would be set. All the preparations had been made. The, the lamb had been taken to the temple that afternoon and had been slain and all of that. And now it was roasted and here it was ready for the reading. The unleavened bread would be there. They would look at the table. There would be, as always, four cups of wine. They would expect, no doubt, Jesus, who would be the sort of head of their household, if you will, as they came and gathered to eat together, that he would pray. Thanksgiving would be given. The first cup of wine would be drunk. Uh, then they would realize that bitter herbs would be eaten and it would be a reminder to them, oh, yes, of the affliction of their fathers. In fact, by that time, it was very common for the host to say something to the effect is this bread is the bread of affliction that our ancestors uh, uh, experienced or suffered uh, on that time when they were led out of Egypt and all the time that they spent suffering in their slavery. They had sense of it. And so they would, they would eat these bitter herbs. They would sing songs. They would sing from this great Hallel, as it's called, Psalm 113, 114, as they began their evening together. The second cup would be drunk. The, 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 the table set. The question asked, what does this mean? The answer given concerning deliverance from Egypt. The meal eaten, the the unleavened bread, the roasted lamb. Third cup drunk, more songs sung. Fourth cup drunk, they would leave. All of that, all of that taken together. But, but, but Jesus comes on this particular night. I suspect things seemed a little awkward and a little weird as they began. You remember if John's account is the same night, which we trust that it, <coughs> excuse me, trust that it is, then, then we see that Jesus washes their feet and all of that and begins to talk to them about his, his leaving and, 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 and so forth. But, but in the midst of this, this, this meal takes place. It, it seems, no doubt, to start out uh, reasonably normal, but, but, but then by the time we get to this unleavened bread-eating part, Jesus takes it. And he makes a statement about it, not about, no, no doubt, the affliction of their ancestors and the slavery that they suffered and the bitterness that, that existed for them, but, but he takes this piece of unleavened bread, and, and, and I trust if you're like me and you're an Israelite and Jesus picks it up, you're kind of an automatic pilot and you're hearing already the words that he should be saying, and then he says, this is my body. And you want to raise your hand and say, no, it isn't. It's, it's, it's the bread of affliction. I suspect if someone would say that, Jesus would say yes. This is my body. And he says, it's given for you. And we don't know exactly how much time there was between that and the cup that came next. That third cup, which is known as the cup of blessing, but Jesus would take that cup. And I suspect at that point, you're thinking, okay, what's he going to say about this? He says, this cup is the covenants. Luke lays it out. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, chapter 11 as the new covenant. All of a sudden, bells and whistles. All of a sudden, you realize, all right, I get it. 
He's going to inaugurate. He's going to begin. He's going to bring in this new covenant, this thing that Jeremiah talked about, this thing that we've been looking forward to all these generations. Now it's coming in him, in Jesus. Uh, now we know that, 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 that hearts will be changed, that he's going to write his law upon our hearts and minds, that, that we will be his people. He will be our God, that, that we'll know him and that our sins would be remembered no more. Our sins would be forgiven. All that's going to take place now. All that's coming to fruition now. All in Jesus. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for many. Just just in case you don't get this, for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, all right, the new covenant, all that was promised by the prophet, by the prophet Jeremiah. What was signified in all of that, this meal, what was signified in all of that is, is obviously the bread and the wine, saying this is body, this is blood. It points to something. What does it point to? It points to the death of Jesus. And that's where we had to go when we see bread, when we see wine. We, we, we should go directly from that to the death of Jesus, to the cross. And we should see, yes, he died for the sins of sinners. I'm a sinner. He died for people like me. Thus, any who believe in him then are forgiven their sins. He said, this is the sign. This, this confirms that. This authenticates it. And the question for us is, well, what's it mean as we come to this table? What's it really mean? How do, how, how do we understand this? Well, most certainly, as all covenant meals is a ratification, just like in Exodus chapter 24, a ratification where God endorses the covenant and he says, this is true. This is what's in effect. I approve of this message, you would say. All right? Uh, this is in effect, this covenant. It's in the blood of my son. That is his shed blood enacts all of this so that any who believe in him are forgiven their sins. And as we come, we ratify that covenant too. We come by faith. We say, yes, I believe. Yes. So in our coming to the table, we are saying, yes, all of this is true. All right. And thus we come then to eat. As Moses and the others ate in the presence of God in that particular covenant ratification, we come to eat as well. And then we say, yes, this is there's peace. There's peace between us and God on the basis of the blood that has been shed, the offering that has been made by Jesus on the cross brings peace. Thus, we now can be in the very presence of God with him. Now, the question is, in what sense and in what way is Jesus present? And how then does that affect us as we come to his presence? Now we know the disagreements about the elements and all of that. We do not hold at all that uh, Jesus is present in the elements per se, meaning that the elements contain his corporal, his actual body and blood. We believe that for a number of reasons. Number one, that when Jesus ascended, you remember, he said, I'm leaving, I'm sending someone else. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is in glory because, you see, Jesus still has a body. Remember, even after the resurrection, Jesus can only be in one place at one time. We don't have any accounts that Jesus was here and there. He had a body. It was a cool body. <laughs> but it was a body nonetheless. 
Uh, and so he's in glory, ruling and reigning. We read of that of him. And so how then could Jesus in any sense ever say, I'll be with you? Well, because he was sending his spirit. And his spirit would testify to him and bring his presence, mediate his presence, if you will, uh, with us. And so we say always, if Jesus is present anywhere, he's present spiritually. That is, he's present by his spirit. One day we'll see him, but, but he's present by his spirit. Not only that, but on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, when he went through this supper and he said, this is my body, I don't think any of the disciples would say, wow, reading the real flesh of Jesus. They would have said, no, his body's there. We understand what he means. In the same way that our fathers would say, this bread is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate. No, it's not. They ate it. How could there be any left over? Um, and if so, it would be awfully unleavened by that point, right? Uh, you know, they, they understood that. It was normal kinds of language. Saying, but, 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 but as we eat this, there's a sense in which we're taking the same bread they took. Jesus said, this is my body. As you believe you take this, there's the same sense in which you're taking that which I did. That's who I am. Jesus spoke of himself in various ways. He would refer to himself as, as the door. But we know that it doesn't mean that he had hinges, right? We know that it meant he was the way in. He would speak of himself as the vine. We know that he didn't have roots. Uh, But we knew what he meant by that. He was the source of all that we needed. So when he said, this is my body, he would be saying in the same sense, if you look at a map and said, this is the United States, you know, that isn't it. But, but you know what, he, well, know what we mean by that. If you look at a picture of someone, you, that's George, and you go, oh, yeah, okay, that's George. But, but it isn't, but you know what we mean by that. And Jesus was saying, this represents all that my body giving for you means. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood. So we understand that as well. But still there's something about this, isn't there? The very presence of Jesus. Now you say, isn't Jesus present everywhere by his spirit? And the answer is yes. When we read the scripture, we trust that the Holy Spirit is with us, right? The very presence of Jesus with us by way of his spirit. And so we expect as we read the scripture, grace to come to us, understanding to come to us. That somehow we can get because we're used to words and talking and teaching. This is kind of a visual message. It's rather mysterious. You go, wow, i got to make some kind of connection between this and Jesus. Between bread and wine and Jesus. Because it's just, I'm giving you this to do it. It's a little different. It's a, it's a visual. You, you see it. It's, it's something you can smell. It's something you can feel. It's something you can taste. It has to be informed by the word. The word has to inform what all that means. But in understanding that, he said, I want you to come here. And I'm going to be present here spiritually. The very presence of Jesus. I'm going to be present here. You go, well, but aren't you? Pre-? Yes, I'm present there. And yes, I'm present when you read. And yes, I'm present when you pray. And all of that. But this is another way in which I'm going to be present. But, but this presence here is to confirm something to you. That all of my promises are true. So when you come here... You come to receive. Oh, yes, you come to remember. The scripture says that we do this in remembrance of him. So we're thinking about him when we're coming. We're not coming empty-headedly or any of that. And we get at the table and we go, oh, wonder why I'm here. wonder what this is all about. No, 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 no. And we come by faith. It isn't automatic. It isn't just you eat this and drink this or whatever. And you go, oh, filled with grace. No. 
Jesus said, remember, what goes in the stomach <laughs> comes out. Uh, it's, not, it's not about that. But in the doing of that, there's a fellowship with Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 puts it like this. The context here is that there was an issue in ancient Corinth. Um, uh, chapter 10, verse I'll begin with verse 14, actually. But there was a, 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 a situation going on in ancient Corinth where people were eating food offered to idols that had been, you know, had been, been, had been sacrificed. And, and uh, they had various ways in which they could come in contact with, with the food that was the, the, the meat that had been offered to idols, uh, whether they bought it in the marketplace, whether they went to somebody's house for dinner, whether they went to a pagan temple even and had a celebration of some sorts, which would not be unusual in those days. Seems odd to us, but wouldn't be unusual in those days. And so the question was, should we eat this? meat and, 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 and Paul was laying out various stipulations about that but, but the point he was making ultimately was one in comparison with communion verse 14 he says therefore my beloved flee from idolatry I speak to the sensible people reasonable people judge for yourselves what I say the cup of blessing referring to communion the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. And, and I read that. And even as a preacher. I don't want to say anything. Because I don't know quite what to say. That word participation. Is, is a Greek word. Many, of, which, many of, uh, of, of us are familiar with that word. It's the word koinonia. It means to fellowship with. In some sense it means to be united with. It, it means to, to receive from. To have relationship with. And he says, this cup of blessing, meaning when we come to this table for this cup of blessing, uh, it, there's a fellowship with Jesus. And we say, well, how can that be? And he says, well, by my spirit. As you come in faith, you come to this table, I'm here. There's a sense in which it's this participation, this fellowship. The cup of blessing that we bless is, not a particip- is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ, a fellowship with the body? Isn't there some connection between the thing signified, I'm sorry, between the sign and that to which it points? And you get the sense that Paul is saying, yes, there is a spiritual, covenantal connection. That when we come here, it isn't just because we're saying, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to come and take this and go sit down. It's a sense in which we're coming into the very presence of Jesus in a way, that's the only way I can say it, that's unique, that's different than when I come to the scripture, than when I sit down to pray, than when I come into a worship service, than when I go anywhere. He says, when you come to this table, there's a sense in which you're coming into the very presence of Jesus. To receive from him. A participation. And not only that, he says, that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. He says, consider the people of Israel are are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food is offered to idols as anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. His point is that there's a sense in which as we come here, we come to the very presence of our Lord Jesus to receive from him. Um, 
in our confessional standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the larger catechism, you know, there's a confession. And then there's a couple of study guides that have been written to the confession. One is the shorter catechism, the other the longer catechism. The difference between the two is that one's longer than the other. But really, the shorter catechism was written for children. The larger catechism written for adults. So let me read from the larger catechism concerning communion. Question 168. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sacrament that is sacred, that is setting apart of that which is common to be used, consecrated by God for his purposes, this bread and this juice. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament in which bread and wine are given and received as Christ directed to proclaim his death. Those who receive the Lord's Supper in the right way feed on his body and blood and thereby are spiritually nourished and grow in grace. Gives me goosebumps, and I don't understand that. But from the scripture, it appears to be true. Again, I understand it when I come to the scripture and I read the scripture, I realize I'm going to grow in grace because I'm going to think of all these things, and God will help me and change my mind and change my heart through all of this. But but, but he says it's also true, in a sense, when, when we come to this table that we feed, are nourished by, feed in the body and blood, and therefore are spiritually nourished. Something should happen when we come to this table. The blessings that are ours because of the death of Christ in some sense come to us as we come to this table. He should feed us. Now, what are those blessings? Well, we can lay them out in a number of different ways. And for time's sake, let me just put it like this. There's obviously the blessing of justification, which includes forgiveness of sins, which includes this declaration of righteousness, that we're righteous in the sight of God because of Jesus' death and his life. His life brings us righteousness. He lived righteously. That's given to us. His death brings forgiveness of sins. that we might know a declaration of righteousness and forgiveness of sins as we come to this table. There's a sense in which our assurance of having been forgiven should grow, should strengthen. And you say, how can that happen? And I don't have the answer to that. Other than by faith and a work of the Spirit of God. I don't know how it will happen for you or me. I, I suppose as we're going out, if we did exit interviews, we'd, we'd talk about this. And for some, maybe you feel nothing. For others, you think that through. And, and, and for others, you go, oh, yes, I get it. I, and over time, you see, as this accumulates in us, as the reading of the word accumulates in us, as our prayers accumulate, as we take of this table time and time again, there's a sense in which our assurance, having been forgiven, being righteous in Jesus should be strengthened. The blessing of sanctification, that is that God is at work in us by his spirit to make us, us holy. Uh, knowing that that is true, that yes, God is at work in me. Though I face temptations and stumble, though I, I face temptations and struggle, though the temptations before me seem, seem overwhelming at times, when I come to this table, how he feeds me is to say, trust me. I'm at work in you. Trust me. By my spirit, I'm at work in such a way that I'm forming myself, my very character in you. Trust me that I'll give you strength to overcome. Trust me that, that, that you belong to me. Trust me. And over time, you see, as we come to this table again and again, in fact, there's a, a wonderful question in, in the confession um, uh, 
that I, I feed off of, if I may use that expression. And the question is this, should those who have doubts about their being in Christ or about whether they're ready to take communion come to the Lord's Supper anyway? Now, most of us in our sort of pietistic background would say, no, you can't come to the table until you're ready, perfect, you know, and all of this. But these rather nerdy theologians of the 17th century, who you think are rather stuffed in their shirts, would this. Those who have doubts about their position in Christ or about their readiness to take communion may nonetheless have a valid interest in Christ even though they're not yet assured of being in him. In God's view, if such people are aware of and grieved by their lack of assurance, sincerely want to be found in Christ and want to get away from sinning, and, parenthetically, since promises are involved in the sacrament and it has been established to aid even weak and doubting people, Christians... If people in that condition are truly sorry for their lack of faith and, and work hard to resolve their doubts, they may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper so that their faith, faith may be further strengthened. In other words, if you really want to believe, if you really want to be assured, he says, don't stay away from this any more than you would say, stay away from this. Any more than you would say, stay away from this any more than you would say stay away from worship. I say, no, no, come. Why? Because there's something, shall we say, indescribable that happens when we come into the presence of the Lord. He strengthens. He feeds us justification. He feeds us sanctification. Those who fear about that which is to come, he feeds us glorification. He says a day is coming, trust me. And you'll be in my very presence. Don't fear the path to get there. Don't fear the life of struggle. Don't fear the death that comes. Come. And thus we should, as a company of people, year after year after year, time after time after time, and not only coming to his word, but praying together and being in his presence and receiving from him, from communion, we should be strengthening in faith. We should be growing in that. We should be better at, if you will, stronger to overcome temptation over time. This all feeds into that. So as we come to this table, there's a sense of mystery, there's a sense of anticipation, there's a sense of really breathtaking awe. As Presbyterian types who like to think and analyze and line it all out, there's a sense of discomfort. What's really going to happen here? How's he going to meet me here? What does this all really have to do with my fate? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, took bread. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim, we make a declaration. We proclaim the Lord's death to us, to all around us. Until he comes. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, as we come to this table. That we would have an expectation of meeting Jesus. In a way that we don't meet him anywhere else. So I pray that you would take this bread, take this juice, set it apart in such a way. It will cast our minds from the bread and juice per se, but to Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I pray that even as we come, that you would meet us here. You know us. You know every particular doubt and fear. You know every pride and every bit of self-righteousness in us. And so I pray that as we come, that you would grant grace to us, grace to know sins forgiven, grace to know that we're righteous in your sight, that we've been adopted by you, that we belong to you, grace to know that we can trust every promise that you have given, grace to know that you're at work even in us now as we struggle with the various and the sundry temptations that come our way, that grieve our souls. That we know that we belong to you, that you care for us. That we know a day will come when we will pass from this earth, this place to the next, and that even there you will be with us, and we needn't fear. Other work, all the very blessings that are ours because of what Christ has done in us so that we may believe and you may be glorified. And this I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God and all, that, and all who know that they're without hope because of their sin except in the sovereign mercy of God. And the sovereign mercy of God has been expressed to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus this table is for all those who trust in him, who believe in him as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and all who desire to walk with him. That's true for you. I invite you to come these two sections down the aisle to my left, these two sections out to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, remind yourself, Jesus is here. Please come. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that all that Jesus has done for us would be known by us, received by us, so that his 
and death would be your glory and our great blessing. Father, may we live in such a way that, that glorifies all that he has done that shows that it is really, really true. Other times in life when it's more difficult to live that out, it seems, than other times. Sometimes prosperity makes it difficult for us to really depend and really live that out. So we pray for those who are prospering at the moment that their eyes would not be turned away from Christ, but rather towards him in thankfulness and dependence upon him. And Father, for those who are finding life perhaps difficult, we pray that you would confirm all your blessings to Janet Yeo and her family on the death of her mom and Mark Nace and his family on the death of Mark's dad, for Tim Redman and his family on the death of Tim's mom. And Father, we pray for them. Father, we pray too for those who are um, struggling, perhaps even to maintain life. We pray for our dear, dear brother, Norm Holmskog, and uh, Beverly, his wife, as Norm uh, faces this time of of decline in his physical body. We pray that you would, as you've promised, renew his spirit day by day. Father, for Mim McGrogan, as she recovers from a heart attack, Paul Bullen, as he recovers from surgery, Father, we pray for them, that you would grant them grace. And Father, we give you thanks on this day for the birth of Thomas Belcher to Tim and Gwen, and we're grateful for the birth of that child. Bless him and them. And Father, for us, that we might be the very manifestation of the grace of God on the face of the earth. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, 